Good morning. This morning I will be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 30 to 34. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Good morning, everybody. So somebody told me that I better better bring the thunder today or be uh, lively or people will fall asleep on me. You guys, I hope you're you're awake. Um, So today uh, we're picking up our series on Follow the Servant. And today's passage is going to feature a teaching about Jesus that Jesus taught about something commonly known as servant leadership. Now, servant leadership is a concept that has uh, not stayed within the pages of Scripture. It's, it's gone mainstream. In fact, you can hear conferences on it. You can find slideshow decks around it. Uh, a lot of Fortune 500 companies would subscribe to this, this concept of servant leadership. And, uh, you know, so it, it basically is going to mean that the CEO or whoever is going to be a steward of resources, that they're going to invest a lot into developing uh, the people that work under them and just a commitment to their people. And uh, it's really no wonder that this kind of philosophy would make a company uh, the type of company that makes Fortune 100's best places to work uh, very commonly. Uh, there's some pretty big names, Wegmans, Zappos, Marriott, uh, even Starbucks, I think, uh, subscribes to this, this concept of servant leadership. Now, there are several ancient leaders that kind of put forth some of these concepts that a leader needs to develop his people, but nobody has put it forth in a way like Jesus Christ has. Uh, no one has put it so radically, and nobody has modeled it as radically as Jesus. As I studied this passage, I all of a sudden realized that it may be timely for us as a church because this evening at 6 o'clock we're going to vote on a search committee and we're going to be commissioning that search committee to search for the next servant leader of Ogletown. And, uh, of course, the, the type of person that we are looking for is not stop with a search committee. Uh, basically, if you're a person here and you have relationships and responsibilities, then you can be a servant leader. So that, that applies to uh, shepherding team members, every single person here, teachers, parents, we all have the capacity to be servant leaders in our sphere. So what does Jesus have to say about servant leadership? So I'm going to take just a moment to kind of bring us up to date about where we are in this narrative. And uh, so in this narrative that was read for you, uh, Jesus predicts his death again. The other week in the uh, introduction, you heard that Jesus does this three separate times, and it's kind of this cycle where Jesus will predict his death, and then his disciples will fall on their faces in some way, and then Jesus will teach them. And so this is the second of those cycles. And uh, his poor disciples, again, need help in understanding, the, the passage says, but they are afraid to ask. What are they afraid of? Well, they're probably fearful of the full implication. So if Jesus is the Messiah is going to die then they just don't want to even think about that. 
Maybe they're afraid to ask because they're just kind of embarrassed. They're like, we, we, we should be getting this. And he keeps saying this, his words are plain. But they, they couldn't get it and they, they didn't want to ask him. Uh, last time Peter rebuked Jesus for this, Jesus came down on him pretty hard. So maybe they just didn't want to risk that. I, it's even possible that they're afraid to ask because a lot of times Jesus spoke enigmatically and he spoke in parables. And so they may have said, they may have been hearing these words that seem kind of plain to them, but they, they were a little bit worried, like maybe there's an underlying meaning, this, this three days are dying. Maybe they were searching for that. But again, they, they didn't want to bring it up. But things are looking good for their uh, understanding because Jesus is now focusing on them. The passage mentions that he passes through Galilee. Now, Galilee is the place where Jesus did most of his public ministry, and he did many mighty works there. But he's not interested in doing more mighty works in public right now. He is seeking a quiet place that he can focus. It says, for he was teaching his disciples. They were his focus. Once Jesus is free of all the crowds and he's in a house, and some people think maybe it was even Peter and Andrew's house, he begins to ask a probing question that's going to introduce the next installment of his teaching on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For his disciples, being a follower of Jesus meant the opportunity to be great in the kingdom. They were thinking in terms of pecking order and leadership But Jesus thought differently. To Jesus, it was a matter of being great, was being the greatest servant. And he gives them today, and we're going to look at this, a profile of a servant leader. The first aspect of the profile of a servant leader is humility. I'd like to direct your attention to verse 35. Jesus says, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. So this is a short, memorable statement. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Being great, according to Jesus, requires humility. A servant leader acknowledges that he's last of all, that he is insignificant, the lowest. Now hopefully we're going to see as we approach this, that this doesn't mean some sort of false modesty or low self-esteem. It's not that. But if it's not that, then, then what is it? Well, humility really is an attitude. It's an attitude. And we're going to see two aspects of this attitude here. The first is, it's an attitude that avoids self-promotion. Now, at the heart of the disciples' discussion was self-promotion. And that's what they were discussing as they went on the way to Capernaum. And this is what Jesus kind of brings to light by asking that probing question, all right? And we see that in verse 33 and 34. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, perhaps they felt driven to this. You know, I imagine that whole incident last week, the transfiguration where the three went up the mountain Uh, that inner circle, um, that probably made some of them pretty deeply insecure. Like, so obviously this inner circle was developing, and so they felt like they needed to maybe uh, establish who came next, or maybe they hoped to move into the inner circle. Uh, Maybe it was a point of pride for those who had made the trip up that mountain. Uh, Maybe they felt like they just needed to speak up, or else they would risk losing status. And so this discussion 
devolves into an argument, which actually, as you've read through Mark, uh, even before and after this, you're going to find out this was a frequent pastime of these disciples. At one point, they argue about who forgot to bring the bread. All right? In uh, the passage immediately preceding this one, uh, they were unable to throw out a demon, and they were arguing with the scribes about why that was. In the passage following this one, uh, they can't cast out, or excuse me, they, they're arguing with somebody who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they're wagging a finger and saying, you can't do that. And, uh, and even in, verse, in chapter 14, Peter boasts that he will outdo all the disciples in loyalty. Well, this is sad, because even while Jesus is speaking of his betrayal and death, even as he's doing that, they are thinking about who's going to sit on his cabinet. One uh, commentator noted kind of the tragic comic nature of this. You see Jesus going to Jerusalem, so he knows what awaits him there. So you see Jesus at the front, trudging steadfastly toward Jerusalem and his Passion Week, and behind him are his disciples, strung out kind of like ducklings, you know, maybe uh, in groups of two or three, but they're, they're jostling and throwing elbows to, to see what's the order of the parade. What's the order of succession? Well, I want you to hold this picture of these disciples like elbowing and jostling when you think about self-promotion. Because self-promotion is arguing, jostling, marking out territory, believing if, if I don't stick up for myself, who will? It's a drive. It drives us to assert ourselves in uh, outright ways and also subtle ways. But the spirit of self-promotion is the opposite of the guy in the front trudging toward Passion Week. Philippians chapter 2 is a key passage in understanding Jesus's the way that he operated. I'd like you to just see this on the, on the screen. Philippians 2 says, For though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. Although Jesus had equality with God the Father, he gave it up. He gave up the divine status that he had enjoyed by taking on the form of a servant and taking on human flesh. You know, that wasn't a promotion. But Jesus knew that his promotion was in the hands of his Father, and so he knew it was in good hands. Humility avoids self-promotion. It is not throwing elbows and trying to get to the top. Humility is, another aspect of the attitude of humility is laying aside honor and privilege. The disciples lived in a shame-honor culture. In fact, uh, parts of the world still live in more of a shame-honor culture. A shame-honor culture is very, very concerned with status, gaining or losing status, and that's based off of wealth, social standing, the family that you come from, and and other things. In that time, burnishing their credentials, even boasting about them, was, was not frowned upon. It was necessary. It was all part of the game. But Jesus flipped the script when he gave up his divine status and privilege. If we look to that verse again, Philippians chapter 2, you'll notice that it says he had equality, but he didn't grasp it. Instead, he laid aside the status and the privilege that it brought in order to do something that only he could do. 
you and I can reflect his values when we lay aside whatever status and honor we have in order to serve. It is really beautiful to watch when somebody uses their position to serve. Jesus Christ did that. He had a position that was unique in all of the world, yet he laid aside the privileges that it brought. You know, this church, Ogletown, needs an army of people like this. We need people who don't pull rank. We need dads and moms and husbands and wives and bosses and employees and church officers and members who don't do this, who say, my position, my things that I could call into play here, I set them aside in order to serve. I think a very good example of the dynamic of this is found in a biography of actually one of the lesser-known presidents. Uh, If you read biographies of this man, you'll find that historians say that history is going to be very, very kind to him. And that happens to be number 41, uh, the older H.W. Bush. He was a man who served one time, one term, and, uh, and he had some, you know, some things at home that made it kind of his popularity plummet. But the things that he did, like he brought the end of the Cold War. He, br- he brought worldwide consensus. But the thing I wanted to note about um, this man is that he was born to privilege. He was born to wealth. He was born to power. And for his family to compete and to be first was, was as natural as breathing. However, they understood also something else, that when you have power and privilege and wealth, you use it for public service. That was very, very much in his DNA. That is how he operated. So I'd ask the question, does humility mean that I don't go after that promotion? Absolutely not. Go for it. But in your pursuit of it, there is a mindset and an attitude. It's a mindset of, I'm going to use whatever privilege I have to serve other people. That I'm not going to be throwing elbows and being nasty. I'm going to just advance by humility. Now you say, that's a little bit confusing. Well, it is a paradox, like Jesus often speaks in. So it can tend to confuse us. But I'm really grateful that the second part of the phrase that Jesus says, that little aphorism, that you must be last of all and servant of all, that that phrase, servant of all, actually tells us how somebody can be last of all. So that phrase expands how somebody who may be first can become last of all, and that is by serving. That's how Jesus did it. He emptied himself by taking on the form of the servant. Some people have called this subtraction by addition. He was still God. Who he was did not change, but he took upon himself the form of a servant, and by that way, he humbled himself. So the second profile of a servant leader after humility is service. Last of all, and servant of all. Now, although we don't have servants and slaves in in the Western culture, which is good, we've seen a lot of movies And we've seen enough history to know what a servant's job is. So when we talk about service, what is a servant's job? Well, very simply, we know that it is to do what another tells them. Jesus himself models this in verse 27 when he acknowledges that God was the one, and here's the phrase that he uses, who sent me. So in the same way that Jesus sends out his disciples, his apostles, 
That's what apostle means. It means sent one. Jesus himself was an apostle. Jesus was a sent one. He was a messenger. Now, we intuitively know what a messenger does. The messenger has an obligation to faithfully give the message they're given. He has an obligation to the one that sent him, and he has an obligation to the hearers. Servants have a similar obligation. Their job is to be prompt and reliable and creative and full of initiative within their commission. They're always going to do what someone else tells them. We actually have servants in our midst. Did you know that servants, the same word that we get from our word deacons, our deacons are the servants of the church. And we as a church vote on them. Our deacons have very, very special jobs, and so they will be mercy deacons, so they have benevolence funds, and they take care of uh, people's needs. We have uh, worship support deacons, where sometimes they set chairs and recruit for sound boards, and, and they, they pass out the elements. They do a lot of these things. We've, we've got operations deacons. If we have a, if we have a church workday, they are behind that. They do uh, special tasks around here. Who gave them that commission? We did as a church body. They are specialized servants. And uh, often they will hear this phrase that they are shock absorbers for the rest of the church. They're supposed to free the shepherding team up. They're supposed to free the membership to be able to worship and serve in a way without having to focus on these areas. They are servants. And a good deacon fulfills their commission. So the job of a servant is to do what someone else tells them. Their job is also to work for the benefit of others. A servant is focused on someone else's success. Jesus says that the servant leader, the one that is great in the kingdom, serves all. A leader is a servant of all. Well, that's intimidating because all is a big word. You know, in what sense does a servant leader serve all? Well, there are at least two groups of people that the apostles that Jesus was talking to were going to have to serve. One of them was the group of people that they hope to win. Jesus told his apostles early on in the account in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, many of them were fishermen by vocation, and so he kind of takes that and he says, I'm going to give you a much, much bigger pool. I'm going to make you a messenger of the kingdom. So implied in this statement of their job is the fact that they are serving, who they're serving. Servant leaders work for the people that they hope to win. For the apostles, this meant going into all the world and making disciples and other followers of Jesus. We, in fact, keep that mission. That's why we have missions. We go into all the world serving those that we hope to win. For many of us, it may simply mean going across the street or going into your place of work and just being the salt and light that you're called to be. The men had a uh, book study that they did a while back called The Art of Being a Neighbor. And the idea of that book is that if you're going to serve those that you hope to win, you first have to know something other than the fact that they drive a black truck and have a dog. You've got to know something about their concerns. You need to go and say, hey, what what concerns you? I want to know you as a person. And then as you get to know me as a person, you'll find out stuff about me. 
One of those things you'll find about me is that I love Jesus Christ with all my heart and that I'm part of a community. I'd love for you to be in that community as well. So that is part of our service. You know, really, every good attempt that we make to be neighborly and build relationship is taken as service to all. So servant leaders, basically that all is anybody, anybody that we hope to win. But Jesus narrows that down just a little bit. Servant leaders also work for those they hope to build up. They have an obligation to the body of Christ, the church. Servant leaders are gifts to the church, and they seek to help everybody who follows Jesus succeed. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 4. So he lists these gifts to the church. They are people. They have gifting, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, Now, all of these gifts to the church, they are gifts to the church to do something, and you can see it there, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's very interesting who is doing the work of ministry here, the saints. So these servants of the church, their job is to equip the saints to all of us do the work of the ministry. So you see here that the ones serving are the leaders and the gifted people of the church. The ones being served are those who are being equipped. But then, in turn, the body begins building itself up. And you just kind of get this, uh, this cycle going on. So you have gifts to the church equipping everybody, and everybody builds everybody up in a thousand different ways. And, uh, and that is how it works. And so for a servant, success is enabling others to be all that God called them to be. That's what service looks like in the body. Now, there's kind of a a question that popped up in my mind as I was thinking about this. And so you wonder if being a servant, you know, so my job is to do what's assigned me and my job is to help others succeed. Does that rob me of ambition and initiative and drive? I would say the answer absolutely is, is no. Being a servant doesn't hinder our initiative and our energy and our drive. It directs it. You will find men and women that are servants in the highest positions of influence. We as a church are going to seek an ambitious servant who is passionate about using his gifts to equip us for the work of the ministry. We want men and women out here to be using significant energy and gifts to dedicate everything to equipping others to be all God called them to be. So, to summarize, being a last of all works itself out in service to all. But then Jesus goes on and he gives us the final piece of the profile of a servant, and that is gentleness. And this is the attitude of that servant. So how do you spot a servant leader? He or she will be the one paying attention to people that other people ignore. Jesus teaches this with a living illustration, a child. Now, today, we see children as perhaps the best of all that is pure and innocent and vulnerable and precious, and they are. We would say without hesitation, that children have rights. To quote Dr. Seuss's character, Horton the Elephant, a person's a person, no matter how small. 
But did you know the ancient world might question that? Parents, of course, had affection for their children, but it was not because they were a child that they had status. They had potential to move into society. But uh, as a child, they really had no status at all. And so Jesus takes a child as an illustration. And so I'm going to ask the question here. It says, such a one, if you do this to such a one. So this child is, is standing up for a group. So who does this child represent? Well, children, for sure. But also people who are like children. In other words, anybody who would be low in status in that society. And elsewhere, Jesus says this, whoever causes one of these little ones, okay, a child, but then he says, who believes in me to sin? So Jesus connects all of his followers as little ones who believe in him. So if you have a multiple choice question here, like, so when Jesus takes a child, what does this child stand for? You know, A, a child. B, lowly people in society. C, believers in Jesus. Or D, all of the above. What could you select there? I would say children, low members of society, and followers of Jesus. Because someone could be all three simultaneously. But Jesus taking a child teaches us Um, that to be great in the kingdom, you have to serve people with no status. Now, that would have been a very, very humbling thing to his disciples. That would have gone against the culture in every way. And uh, for people who are struggling for position, it would have been a very humbling thing. Jesus says that whoever receives this child, you may have a translation that says, welcomes a child, That's helpful, because all of us know what it feels like to be welcomed, don't we? When you go into a place and you feel welcome, what are you feeling? Well, you're feeling, I'm glad you're here, right? You're feeling warmth and openness. You're feeling that somebody cares for your well-being. Somebody wants you to be comfortable. Somebody cares for your emotional state. It means that they're going to do concrete things to serve you. And I'm summarizing all of that spirit, that, that welcoming spirit toward children as gentleness. Gentleness. I'm summarizing this as gentleness, especially to those who may be seen as insignificant. The startling result of welcoming a little one, according to Jesus, is that it is the same as receiving Jesus himself. And more, it's receiving the Father, the one that sent him. You may also note that this is a particular kind of welcoming. Jesus says, if you welcome in my name. You know, in my name is one of those phrases that we we feel like we know what it means, but it it kind of defies definition. But we do know this. If I say, yeah, yeah, you can go ahead and sign for that in my name, we're telling somebody that they can represent us. Jesus didn't share the prevailing view that children should be seen and not heard. In chapter 10, he's indignant when his disciples try to keep children from coming to him. And he declares, let the children come to me. You know, it's an incredible thought that when we are gentle to people that no one else is paying attention to, we represent Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, how many times a day do we encounter little ones? 
I tell you, um, you mothers of preschoolers, you're going to have a lot of rewards in heaven. Those are, those, are little, those are little reward generators right there. They have a hundred times a day, they need your comfort and your care you, to hear them, to hear their requests. You know, there's a, there could be a person that we're tempted to avoid because they take something from us. They don't give, they take. They, they, they sap our energy, they sap our time and our money. And uh, are you tempted to pay attention to them less than somebody who might advance us in some way? Well, absolutely. You know, that's what it means to be human. That's very human. But when we care for them and pay attention for them, that's divine. I remember a friend who was a a caregiver uh, who attended to an aging father who had dementia. And uh, his father would have this way of waking up like at 3 a.m., um, on most nights, and he would start getting dressed, and so he'd start hearing drawers slam and, and things rattling. And, and my friend called this, uh, his father, the household liturgist. And what he means by that is that every time that 3 a.m. wake-up call came, it was calling him to worship. In what way was he worshiping? He was, he was serving someone in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, um, when you hear that baby monitor squeaking at 2 a.m., and you're just like, please no, please no, please no, and then it erupts, and you're stumbling down a cold hallway. At that time, you can know that you are welcoming, comforting, and caring for a little one, that you're actually receiving Jesus Christ and the Father. As we pray for the search for our senior pastor, a key trait of his character should be a love for people who others might think are insignificant. As we search, it may be that the people that were on the housekeeping staff at the church might be a better referent uh, than pastor friends. And we need to remember that. So, profile of a servant leader. This is a simple thing, wasn't it? It needs to be last of all, servant of all, gentle, You know, as we look around the world, we see displays of prideful power often. We'll see swagger and bragging, arrogance, haughtiness. Everyone wants to be us. That might be the mantra. We also see a lot of unhealthy displays of powerless humility. These would be false humilities. These would be people who have low self-esteem or they berate themselves. They may let their appearance go. They may even cut themselves because of self-loathing. And so you may see these unhealthy demonstrations. And so you have two poles here, prideful power and then powerless humility. And what we see here in Jesus' teaching, that his teaching cuts across these two concepts that we may think are diametrically opposed. So Jesus would say, No, you don't have either of those things. You have power through humble service. And that is a servant leader. You know, we serve an amazing God. His wisdom and his ways surprise us and they show us a better way. Now, why did God bring us into contact with this idea today? I would just say two things. Number one, I think we need to be encouraged to be this kind of servant leader. I hope that it moves us to action. I hope that you use every 
bit of creativity and energy and gifting and initiative that you have to benefit all. I hope that you will go out and you will seek to win those that we hope to win. I hope you will help other believers be built up and succeed. I'm hoping that our hearts will be softened to those who cannot advance us in any way, that we would pay attention to them, that we would care for them, that we'd be showing kindness to them, and that as we do so, we would marvel at the fact that we are the hands of Jesus when we do so. So I'd encourage us to be this kind of leader, every one of us. But I also ask that we be encouraged to search for this kind of leader. Now, would you join me in praying for the next leader of Ogletown? If we keep Jesus' teaching in mind, I think we'll be in a lot better position to, to know him when we see him. This person will be humble, not self-promoting, not privileged in their own mind, a servant, one who is very, very aware that God has called him to a task and pursues it with every bit of energy and skill he possesses, one who works for the benefit of others, who has a heart to seek for people that we seek to win, has an evangelistic heart, who has a heart for equipping, to seeking to enable people to be everything God wants them to be, someone who is gracious even to those who may be thought of as insignificant. And if we find this kind of servant leader, we will be blessed. I do think that we have been blessed before by this kind of leader, and I do think that we will be blessed again. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for colorful stories. Thank you for the humanness of your disciples. Thank you for Jesus' teaching that is so simple and so profound. Or it's something that immediately begins to affect the way that we think, that cuts across our culture in a way that we can say, it's not this, it's not this, it's something altogether greater. Lord, I pray that we would have your grace to be this sort of servant leader in all of our spheres in all of our responsibilities and all of our relationships. And Father, I pray as a church, as we seek the next servant leader of this congregation, Father, I pray that we would, that we would be, have good success. Lord, we thank this, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.